Hello, and welcome to the Alcohol Problem Podcast. I'm Dr. James Morris, an alcohol researcher interested in harmful drinking and addiction issues. This stems in part from my own experiences, so the show aims to explore a range of lived and academic perspectives relating to the question of what really is an alcohol problem. In this episode, I talk to two researchers about what is Alcoholics Anonymous and how it works. First, I talk to Dr. Hannah Glassman, who has studied the experiences of AA members and ex-members. Next, I talk to Professor John Kelly, who has conducted extensive research into AA and the role of peer support in recovery. So thanks so much for joining me, Hannah. Um, Do you mind just briefly telling me a bit about yourself and your work? Yeah, so I wear a couple of hats. Firstly, I'm a psychologist working in a private practice in Sydney. I've previously worked in school and psychiatric hospital settings, and quite a bit of my clinical work has been in drug and alcohol and also co-occurring mental health issues like anxiety, depression, trauma. Um, But I'm also a qualitative researcher, and I've just recently completed a PhD that explored varied experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous. So we looked at people who loved AA, people who really disliked AA, And my PhD identified the aspects of AA that some participants found very useful while others found to be unhelpful or even harmful. And yeah, let's talk a bit more about that. But could we just try and kind of define as much as is possible what kind of Alcoholics Anonymous is? Like, obviously, I think, you know, people would know it's a kind of worldwide fellowship of meetings, a lot of which obviously take part online now as well. But I guess kind of, you know, it's very hard to summarise what it is because any individual meeting will always be different from another. It might have a a different philosophy. It might be a steps meeting versus not. And then it's obviously made dependent on the people that attend it. But what would you say the sort of core defining elements of of, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or AA meeting? Yeah. So... The core defining elements of AA, I'd say firstly, it's a peer support group. So it was founded in the 1930s by two men, Bill Wilson and Bob Smith, who discovered the utility of talking to one another about their experiences with alcohol to help them stay sober. So it was unique in that it was a peer-to-peer approach. Um, But we should also talk about the major influences on AA at the time um, to give context around what it is today. So the first is the medical model. So in the 1930s, alcoholism was understood as a disease. Alcoholics were distinct from non-alcoholics and were understood to have an abnormal physiological reaction to alcohol that meant that they were not able to control drinking afterwards. So I know that this um, alcoholic, non-alcoholic dichotomy is something that you've critiqued in your work and um, as other guests on your podcast have talked about, problems with alcohol are currently understood to lie on a spectrum with respect to the degree of control a person has and the consequences of their drinking. But back then in the 1930s, there were non-alcoholics or normal drinkers and alcoholics who had no control. And so this understanding of alcoholism is what the founders of AA drew upon to understand their experiences with alcohol and that feeling of being out of control with their drinking. And then the second major influence was the Oxford group. Um, and that's where the 12 steps as we know them today were actually derived from. So the founders of AA met through a Christian organization, the Oxford group, and then they parted ways in 1939. Um, they expanded the Oxford group tenants into the 12 steps. I, I won't go into what they are now unless you want me to. Well, I guess the first step's really important, isn't it? In terms of 
kind of capturing the idea of it's like the idea that we're kind of powerless to control our addiction is that right yeah that's right and that's um that's where the medical model comes into play so in aa through hearing stories um from their peers they a new aa member learns that or relates their own experiences of uncontrolled drinking to these stories um of of feeling out of control um so this key aspect of the alcoholic identity that's adopted is the powerlessness over alcohol and i think you know a key strength or attraction I think for many people that benefit from AA is the way in which the alcohol problem is so clearly defined, you know, like obviously, you know, I think the much broader debates around criticism around kind of moderation or controlled drinking is that, you know, it's, it is harder for people, even for who, for whom it may be possible to moderate for, but because there is no clear kind of boundary, you know, you have to set your own rules on, on what they are. And obviously the kind of idea of AA is that you're just fundamentally not able to control it, but that's, I think in part it's strength, you know, that the, there's no kind of grey areas. It's very clear that even if it's interpreted in a metaphorical sense, the allergy, as you said, or the physiological reaction means that you cannot touch a drop. And that makes it very clear <laughs> what the kind of goal is from the start. Um, and everything, I guess, not everything, but a lot of it is then built around achieving or sustaining, supporting that very clear goal. Although... I think it's important, and you can say more about this, the, the extent to which it's not just about abstaining, is it? It's a, it's a kind of, it views a disease in a kind of spiritual sense as much as a physiological one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things in that, just on the, the powerlessness part and the the value of that. So my research, it found that AA members describe the idea of powerlessness as very relatable. So obviously AA is best suited for people who relate to this concept of being out of control with alcohol. Um, and those members described learning about this idea of powerlessness as a bit of a relief almost because they were given this very structured approach to recovery off the back of it and a clear prescription of total abstinence. Um, but then, yeah, the second part of the alcoholic identity that um, was most commonly adopted, not in, and it varied across participants, but there was also this idea of being unwell mentally, emotionally, spiritually, above and beyond problems with alcohol. And then the prescription for that problem is to take the rest of the 12 steps. So um, this idea that in order to lead a happy, healthy sober life um an alcoholic in aa has to take the 12 steps but then there are kind of um non-stepped meetings uh, I, I mean perhaps they're in the minority but they're just more around sharing stories and mm. you know what's going on for people rather than necessarily working the steps yeah so what i've just described in terms of the alcoholic identity and the different parts the powerlessness and then the being unwell beyond that and needing the steps. That's what um, I refer to as the master narrative of AA um, in my research. And that could be argued as it's kind of prevalent no matter where you go in AA. However, there is diversity across different groups in terms of uh, what could be called degrees of fundamentalism, um, where some groups promote stricter adoption of these fundamental AA tenets and others who have members who adopt AA ideology and practices more flexibly. Um, and yeah, that is 
that's created there, there are different cultures within different groups and the structure of the group and the focus so they're whether they're focusing on talking about the steps or talking about other topics relevant to dis, to recovery um yeah it's and then the people who comprise them and their yeah, individual differences across those groups I suppose what's interesting as well is that the only requirement to attend AA is a desire to stop drinking, but obviously participation and engagement or benefiting from AA to a large degree depends on the extent to which you might buy into those narratives or that overall master narrative. Yeah, yeah. A big part of why AA works is that you do adopt this identity that is the bedrock of these huge lifestyle changes. Um, And so that's a a huge strength of AA. And it's also a criticism of AA that the identity change is so profound and that it prescribes this lifelong recovery where you need to take these um, prescribed actions. So it can be looked at both ways, depending on who you are. Um, and that that came across in my interviews with participants. Some people who had left AA described it as um, that they'd been indoctrinated into these ideas that they now have now come to believe aren't for them. And then the AA members talked about really this inside enhancing transformative process process um, that they where they adopted this identity that really fit for them um, and took on a routine and practices that they found helpful. And can you say a bit more about the steps then? So if the first step is accepting powerlessness, um, what are there other key steps that, that kind of feel that are seen as particularly pertinent to AA? Yeah, so step one is admitting being powerless over alcohol. Um, After that, there's accepting the need for a power greater than yourself to maintain sobriety, taking a moral inventory, addressing past wrongs and helping other alcoholics. Those would be the key components. And then generally in a stepped meeting, would it be that there'd be a particular step that would be addressed or people would be expected to, is it called working the steps, work on in a particular meeting and then the next week would be the following step? Would that be typical? Yeah, that's pretty common. Um, In a steps meeting, the topic is generally one step or an aspect of a step and then the members will share on their experiences related to undertaking that step, yeah. And what else have you kind of looked at in your research in terms of people's experiences of AA, positive or not? Um, So it's probably best to break it down into a few core components of AA that we discovered were quite contentious across the the different participants. Um, So they would be the powerlessness ideology, this idea of a higher power that's needed to maintain sobriety, and then this emphasis on self-examination that comes in across through the steps in the the moral inventory processes and making amends. Uh, So obviously, AA is best suited for those who relate to this idea of powerlessness and feel that their drinking is out of control. Um, And the research does indicate that some problems drinkers are best suited to aim for abstinence. So, for example, those whose drinking has been so detrimental that to minimise the risks of serious harm, they would have to stop drinking entirely, or simply those who would find trying to moderate their drinking too difficult. Um, And a lot of AA members did report that their attempts to try to moderate uh, were unsuccessful before joining AA. Um, So for this portion of problem drinkers, they're AA's target group, if you like. Um, In contrast, AA wouldn't be well suited for those who don't relate to this idea of powerlessness, who don't feel their drinking is out of control or who don't want to aim for long-term abstinence. 
And I think the concept of a lifelong abstinence is very daunting, very unattractive for a lot of people. Um, And in my research, we identified that many of those research participants who had been members of AA and decided to leave found this idea of powerlessness to be quite restrictive or inappropriate, that they'd internalised this message that if they drank, that would inevitably start a downward trajectory with death at the bottom or just a miserable life. And after they left, they were able to engage in controlled drinking and really resented AA for giving them that message in the first place. Um, And we also found that um, current AA members who were struggling to maintain abstinence, who would relapse because of this emphasis on abstinence in AA, they carried this sense of failure and shame. And they kept trying to live up to this ideal of abstinence that was proving very difficult. So at least in some instances, for those who are having great difficulty maintaining abstinence, they might be better placed to engage in an approach outside of an abstinent community where their recovery isn't going to be constantly undermined by this sense of shame and being a failure amongst their peers. But then I suppose what's characterised by recovery as a process, whether in the AA or outside of it, is that it's you know it takes time and you know there's various statistics that the chance of a of to use the term relapse um doesn't drop to below i don't know 15% i think it is within 5 years what whatever kind of treatment modality someone's in so i guess it's it's important to say that um that some people will experience maybe negative feelings of um, failure or shame or whatever, but over time they will resolve them through AA. Um, not everybody and many people will exit disappointed as you've interviewed people with that experience. Um, but the same could be true for, for any treatment experience or a recovery approach that, you know, it works for some and it doesn't for others. And mm. for some, it only works the longer they kind of stick with it. Yeah, and I'm definitely not saying that a person who's relapsed is going to have a terrible time in AA because that's certainly not what it's supposed to be like. It's meant to be and definitely can be a a very supportive place. However, it can also be difficult to escape that sense of shame and this this largely depends on the members across AA groups and how those members choose to respond to a peer who's relapsed and whether that response was experienced as supportive or shaming. So it all depends on a number of different factors and that's sometimes where the diversity of possible experiences across varied groups comes into play. Yeah, it's really interesting and there's a lot of very interesting debates about whether stigma can be, you know, kind of a positive incentive in the sense that maybe it disincentivizes certain behaviors or encourages people to seek recovery to resolve the problem that carries with it shame maybe there's some evidence for some of those effects but on the whole i think stigma and shame are certainly by their definition harmful processes mm-hmm. but some people you know i think wendy dossett argued on explained on the episode i did with her on spirituality and alcoholics anonymous that AA is a a way for a lot of people to resolve the shame they have around their alcohol problem. And yeah, I guess that can happen in lots of different ways. Um, One way is just literally owning that problem and um, yeah, like kind of grouping together and not shaming other people, but accepting that there's this this kind of problem or disease or illness or whatever, whatever you have to say. But then I guess, yeah, people are very aware that when they leave, they kind of peer support network then if they disclose their 
their alcoholic identity, then that does carry a lot of stigma and judgment amongst other people, particularly, um, you know, many people within the general public. But yeah, I guess that process of how it is or isn't resolved for some people within AA is a really interesting one. Yeah. This is, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a paper um, that I think we've spoken about that we both liked that um, on how AA can help members resolve the shame and stigma around the alcoholic identity um, because they replace their, they, they can replace their stigmatized alcoholic identity with a more valued, um, aware alcoholic self is what the, the authors described um, in that process of adopting the alcoholic identity in AA. But I think the key the factor there is the ability to maintain abstinence. And I think over time, yes, AA can be a supportive place um, that will help someone who's struggling with that um, to, to get there. Um, but over time, if a person is struggling to maintain abstinence, there's really, it can be very, very difficult um, for them to resolve that sense of shame. It's, it's, uh, I mean, my research suggested it's quite impossible to feel okay in AA over time if you keep relapsing um, because of this communal value on abstinence. So it's it can be wonderful as long as you're sober. Yeah, and I guess that re-emphasizes the point you made earlier about the need for other alternative options for people who aren't currently um, achieving abstinence, where maybe, yeah, that the kind of options will be more supportive or less shame-inducing than can potentially happen in an AA meeting because the the normal expectancy around abstinence is so strong. So again, I guess it's both maybe a strength and a weakness depending on the person and where they're at and maybe the group, the extent to which that norm around abstinence can be potentially helpful or potentially harmful. Yeah. And that's also something that health professionals outside of AA might be able to help with if someone is struggling in AA and is finding the narrative around powerlessness and abstinence to be moralizing, um, to have the help of someone from outside of that system to um, work through their problems in a through a different framework. Um, that can that we also found that helped um, participants to work through some of those feelings. But then, yeah, I've always thought it's really interesting in terms of how you know sharing people's life experiences and what's going on for them you know it could be described as a, as a kind of group therapy process in in a kind of general sense i mean you're a psychologist so you would perhaps question the extent to which psychodynamic therapy or counseling on a one-to-one basis is similar to a kind of peer support group is obviously very different but i guess what i'm trying to say is for some people i guess they do find it just therapeutic kind of Maybe it's not the steps necessarily, but it's just the therapeutic process of the group and being able to talk about what's going on in their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The peer support aspect is a key mechanism um, underpinning how AA works and its effectiveness. Um, It does differ from professional psychotherapies um, in that the peers offer a sense of... um, a normalizing of their experiences and understanding connection belonging that that you just don't get from professional approaches and yeah I'm a big fan of peer support in that respect and it is just a, a completely different field um, to 
to professional approaches and I think both both can work together, can and should work together. But, but are they, you know, kind of, I don't know, maybe to be a bit too theoretical about it, the mechanisms of psychotherapy, I guess, you know, there's so many different approaches to kind of talking therapies. But in the general sense, I, could, I don't know, maybe like counselling is about being able to just have space to talk about, you know, difficult experiences and just being able to process and kind of, I guess, come to terms with them in a sense. Is there a component of peer support that that, that is similar to that kind of counselling aspect of, you know, just kind of catharsis or just a space to come to terms with something? Yeah, I would definitely say so. Um, I'm, I can't think of any research that comes to mind, but there was a great study that looked at the the psychotherapeutic mechanisms that uh, were working work in AA, um, and I, they might go into the peer support aspect, but it was mainly around the steps um, and how they work psychotherapeutically and how the same mechanisms um, of recovery in AA are what what is going on in professional psychotherapies like CBT, ACT, DBT. And yeah, is there anything, yeah, anything else in terms of your research about AA that you think uh, is, is particularly interesting? Um, I, I guess I could go through the, the other components of AA beyond the powerlessness aspect that can be experienced either way. So the first is the higher power aspect, um, and just the, the negotiability around that. Um, so we did, while AA is supposed to be non-religious, it, it you can definitely see the religious undertones of the Oxford group. I mean, the word God is mentioned 281 times in the first 164 pages of AA's text, and I didn't count that. Someone else did, and I'm just quoting them. Um, but the ex-members who left AA cited this aspect as a real problem, the religiosity. Um, and other people might not like that because they just don't like thinking about themselves as not the agent of control. They just don't like that language. But it's it's most mostly a problem for for anyone who can't accept the God language. Um, however, we did find that it was emphasised by members as very helpful, the higher power part of AA. Um, and as I've said, researchers have come to some good understandings about how this and other aspects of AA works from different psychotherapeutic perspectives. Um, like letting go of control or reducing narcissistic tendencies. Um, and, yeah, importantly, my research found that that some AA members were able to flexibly adapt this aspect of AA, um, like crossing out the word God in their AA literature and replacing it with the word higher power um, because they didn't like the religiosity. So this does require a fair amount of mental labour to translate that language in your mind when you hear it in an AA meeting, for instance, but a lot of members who dislike the religiosity in AA will do that. Um, and then there have been the introduction of agnostic and atheist meetings, so that's a that's a big shift in AA um, that has mirrored broader societal changes, society becoming more secularised. Um, so that's, yeah, that's probably important um, because it's it's one of the big turnoffs of AA, I think, um, and it's it's just important to highlight that that this can be negotiated um, for people who do identify as atheist or agnostic. Yeah, I think, yeah, again, in, in terms of as the episode with Wendy, she really details how people interpret God or the spirituality aspect in 
in ways that work for them. And the higher power might be the group, the power of the group itself, or um, anything that's important to them in their life. And it sounds like generally, you know, the groups are flexible about or welcoming even of people adopting their own kind of understandings of those components as they wish to. But as long as they're accepting abstinence and, you know, some of the more core tenants or master narratives as you describe, some of the as- other aspects may be more flexible. Yeah, and, and what, what was the other key thing you were going to talk about? Yeah, so the final part of AA was this emphasis on self-examination um, that's embedded in the steps. So, And there hasn't really been studies that have explored who these practices are helpful for or not, um, but it did arise in my PhD as a contentious um, component across the different participants. So we found that AA members generally reported positive experiences from these practices, um, that they were insight enhancing in that they looked at their fears, insecurities, motivations that underlie some of their behaviours, having a hard look at their mistakes and asking what they want to do differently next time. So many AA members really valued these practices um, and this kind of striving towards a a depth in understanding or self-insight and more, I suppose, virtuous kind of ideals um, in their behaviour. However, many ex-members reported that this same emphasis on self-scrutiny was inappropriately pathologising and in particular being guided through the 12 steps by a sponsor or more experienced AA member who helps the, the them in, reinterpret their experiences through this lens in the steps. Many ex-members had a bad time with this. So, um, yeah, sponsors are not licensed therapists. They don't come from trauma-informed perspectives, for example. And one complaint from the ex-members was they felt um, inappropriately blamed for things that happened to them from this need to look at their own part in situations. Um, so yeah, this facet of AA just presents another consideration when we talk about who AA might not be suited for. Um, and it definitely shouldn't be a replacement for professional therapy when needed. Um, and it's also, it just highlights the, the breadth of possible experiences when you work through this really personalized aspect of the 12 steps um with uh, with different sponsors yeah that's that's super interesting yeah so what i wanted to ask or talk about was i guess the idea of denial you know going back to what we were saying kind of earlier as well um but yeah that that self-insight and again this comes up in the sort of broader recovery literature that you know, not just with AA, but people who often talk about recovery through community treatment services or through other experiences or just natural recovery that's without seeking formal help, will often talk about this idea of kind of just being honest with yourself. So I think, you know, in a lot of ways, AA really enables that. And in the language of AA, I think denial is quite strong, you know, that I think there's even a kind of bit of text that says you know sort of smashing the delusion that we're like other drinkers is a way of again kind of owning this issue and you know taking it head on which of course you know as many people would see as a positive thing because you're really coming out of denial and committing to your recovery but the word denial I think is problematic outside of AA because it implies you know almost like someone's choosing not to see things as they are, but, um, you know, some great work by Hannah Pickard, who really dissects the reasons for what might outwardly appear as denial, you know, stigma and shame being one of them. 
but um, also just the context of people's lived experience. If life is really difficult and you're experiencing horrible uh, situations or circumstances or traumas and and so on, then substance use, you know, makes a lot of sense for for many people as a kind of coping mechanism or something else. Is there anything you want to say about that kind of process of sort of problem recognition or ambivalence? Yeah, I think um, we need to draw on the literature that I mentioned around the psychotherapeutic mechanisms in AA and um, researchers from the psychodynamic lens do talk a lot about denial and defense mechanisms and and yeah personally I think it's one of the greatest aspects of AA the focus on um, being honest with yourself um, and that culture in the AA community of open honesty um, with yourself um, and the 12 steps provide that framework not just for recognizing uh, problems with drinking but also you know the, the process that I just mentioned in the moral inventory where you're looking at um, maybe what underpins some of your some of the behaviors that are causing problems in your relationships, for example. Um, so, the, so there's that part of it um, that I think can be great. And then what you just talked about around um, the problems with this notion that you you know if you don't recognize a problem, then that must be you're in denial. Um, it's like the idea that, you know, like if someone, as we said earlier, is ambivalent towards the idea of whether they're powerless or not, other people might sometimes label that as denial. They would say maybe, you know, you are powerless, you just need to admit it, whereas they don't need to admit that if they, that's not what how they feel they are. But owning it can be powerful and conducive to recovery if through the AA. Yeah. Route. So that that's why it's so important in AA that that people come to their own um, belief in their powerlessness. That no one tells them the the process as it's meant to go is that uh, you go into AA and you listen to other people's stories of them talking about their own problems with alcohol and you relate your own experiences to that that narrative of being out of control or those narratives. Um, That's how it's meant to be. It's not supposed to be a process in which uh, you're wrestling with it and you have someone come along and tell you that, you know, you're just not seeing things clearly and you're in denial. Um, The process as it's meant to be laid out, the steps should be quite structured, I think. Um, Generally are quite structured where you will write on evidence of your powerlessness so all the instances that kind of prove to yourself that you can't control it um, and how life has become unmanageable in various domains in your relationships maybe in your work and your health Um, and then the person maybe that allows them to see things that they might not have been looking at before Um, so it's really this the idea is that you you self-identify as an alcoholic no one should be telling you you should be doing that on your own um, and of course that doesn't happen all the time. Um, and, and yeah, that is problematic, um, cause people should be able to make up their own minds. Is there something within the text? Is it a sort of more of an unwritten rule that you should just look for things that you identify and not tell people how to interpret it? Is there anything within the texts or is that more just a sort of in the spirit of it? Yeah, it, it's definitely written into the text. And in my study with the ex-members, we did highlight this 
discrepancy between the ideals in AA and what is written into the text around what it should be like, which is, as you say, that um, people should come to their own understandings through listening to stories, reading stories in the literature um, and relating their own experiences to those stories. And so this discrepancy between what it's supposed to be and what it can be experienced like in reality um, because some AA members will come along and tell people what they should be thinking about themselves. Um, So it shouldn't be like that, but the ex-members did have some experiences. And I should emphasise that um, I think most people in AA don't do that, um, but the people that do can cause harm, and that's what was reported by these ex-members. And, yeah, just sort of perhaps thinking about wrapping up, is there anything else you think particularly that we haven't covered that really is really an important part of of what AA is and, and what happens? I think there's so much that could be said um, and I've kind of gone all over the place today. Um, I think there's some there's some really good research around how AA works psychotherapeutically, which I've found most interesting um, and that's really quite recent. Um, and I think that that research is important because it's quite misunderstood. Um, it's seen as this kind of quasi-religious pseudoscientific organization um, that's really not in line with how problems with alcohol are understood um, today outside of AA. Um, and so I think it is important that that more people have a better understanding of how it actually works and that we kind of demystify how it works um, from these um, psychological lenses. You've got John Kelly on after this um, and he'll be explaining that. Well, I'll just say thanks so much again for coming to talk about your research and I'll post some links to to some of it in the um, episode description. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. Next, I spoke to Professor John Kelly about the research into the effectiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous. So thanks so much, John, for joining me. Um, do you want to just tell me a bit about uh, your role and how you came to research Alcoholics Anonymous? Sure. Yeah. I, I, well, I'm I'm a clinical psychologist by training, uh, trained in um, in in research and clinical work. So, as a clinical psychologist, I um, have studied psychiatric illnesses, of course, but mostly focused in the addiction world and addiction treatment in particular. Uh, and as when when you're studying addiction treatment, you nearly always will include, uh, at least in the United States. Um, probably in many other countries too, where AA is prevalent, you will look at AA participation as a factor because it is so ubiquitous and can be very helpful for different people. So we uh, often include it in our studies. Um, And understanding, you know, does it work? For whom does it work? And why does it work? Are key questions, of course, in asking about AA, but also about any intervention um, my research there has been stimulated in large part by and inspired by colleagues who were doing the same thing before me, um, but also funding from the National Institutes of Health in the United States and the Institute of Medicine here really uh, called for more research in this area about 30 years ago, um, back in 1990. So there was a lot of um, emphasis on studying AA at that time, and I uh, became very interested in understanding the mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's this kind of, I think, perception that that 
you know, amongst the public that we don't really know if AA works. But um, I think, you know, your research has shown that for many people, it absolutely does. You know, it's, it's, it's a huge amount of work that you that you and colleagues have done over the years. But are you able to kind of summarise or start off just giving a, a general brief overview of that kind of question, to what extent or under what conditions or how maybe we can say in a general sense that, that AA might work? Yeah, well, we, you know, since this, this, there's been hundreds and hundreds of studies published on Alcoholics Anonymous um, over the last 50 years. Particularly, though, in the last 30 years, there's been a flurry of rigorous research. And this came about because the Institute of Medicine in the United States of the, of the National Academy of Sciences back in 1990 published a volume uh, on treating alcohol problems. It was a large volume. It was very influential. In that volume, they called explicitly for more research on Alcoholics Anonymous and its mechanisms because it was so pervasive. It was influencing treatment so much in the United States that they wanted to really get a grip on understanding, you know, does it work? What's the magnitude of the benefit? For whom does it work? And why does it work? Also, uh, a lot of studies have been done on cost effectiveness and healthcare cost offsets, and I can talk about that as well. But that stimulated a lot of research. Now, what happened a couple of years ago, myself, Marika Ferry from the European Drugs Monitoring Agency and Keith Humphreys from Stanford, we conducted a systematic review of the research conducted on Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step treatments uh, designed to link patients uh, clinically with AA uh, who are coming into treatment. So these were randomized controlled trials principally. Um, and what we found when we reviewed the literature over the last 100 years or last 80 years since it existed, um, we found um, about 27 high-caliber randomized controlled trials. So these are the, kind of the top level of evidence. So we were able to summarize those in this Cochrane Review, which was published in 2020. What was striking about that was just the power of peers to me and I think to all of us. Uh, in that, when you randomize, when you take a severely addicted, alcohol-addicted patient who's coming in for detox stabilization, when you randomize them to either a linkage to Alcoholics Anonymous or to receive something like cognitive behavioral therapy or motivational interviewing, you know, true, hard and true therapies for addiction, patients who are randomized to a linkage to AA actually have much better remission rates over up to three years in, the, in this review. Uh, uh, to the tune of 20 to 60%, 20 to 60% higher remission rates across three years for those randomly assigned to AA. On all other outcomes, they were just as good. A, a linkage to AA was just as good on things like drinking intensity, consequences, addiction severity. AA did just as well, but where it really shone through was its ability to be able to initiate and sustain remission over time. It also reduced healthcare costs substantially. So people, when they're relying on peers in AA groups and meetings and sponsors, they actually tend to use other services less, even though they're just as severely impaired in terms of psychiatric status, uh, but they utilize peer support as opposed to professional. They also are less likely to end up in the emergency room or you know, overnight stays in the hospital, which tend to be very expensive. So for these reasons, uh, it's also very cost-effective, this systematic clinical linkage. So that's good news for public health. And this is why I often talk about AA and groups, groups like it as the closest thing public health has to a free lunch. 
because we don't get that kind of thing in public health very often where you have this huge network that can really play a very literally cr critical, vital role in keeping people in remission and alive. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, that kind of Cochrane review, as you say, it's a, it's a really robust piece of evidence that really does show, you know, if anyone's doubting that that certainly AA can work, at least for some groups, you know, and I think you'd probably agree that when we say treatment for addiction or whatever, there's never one size fits all. But, you know, going back to that sort of comparison with, for instance, CBT or what we might call treatment as usual, uh, presumably part of the effectiveness is the expectation of regular uh, participation after or as a long duration, you know, CBT might be a number of sessions, six or whatever. But, you know, the AA kind of expectation is that you continue to attend meetings in part, presumably because of the, the, the way that the alcohol problem or addiction is, is seen as something that, that kind of never really goes away. And, and that so that peer support and that engagement um, and all the benefits that that comes with are, you know, you know, you're sustaining them at a long period um, or even indefinite period after kind of uh, standard treatment. Yeah, well, it's a good match. You know, the thing is that, you know, when you look at addiction and the course of recovery from addiction, it tends to be a bumpy one. Um, it's fraught with all kinds of challenges, difficulties in, inside the body and the brain, of course, as the brain is, the central nervous system is healing after uh, the, 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 the drug is removed. Um, and, uh, so there is a period of healing in the body and brain, but also there is an adaptation, of course, big adaptation to uh, real life uh, uh, over time. And what we know now is that it can take up to five years uh, of initial of remission before the risk of relapse or risk of meeting criteria for an alcohol or other drug use disorder is at the same level as the general population. So risk remains elevated for these first five years. So when you think about that and you think about, you know, what we deliver typically clinically, which is, as you pointed out, James, you know, maybe four sessions or 12 sessions of standardized CBT, that's a far cry from what people typically need to sustain recovery on their journey. This is why we see high relapse rates. AA is not a cure-all. You know, there's no doubt it, 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 there's no doubt it's helpful for many people. It's not a cure-all. Um, but uh, the good news is, is that it can, you know, along the road of recovery, people can stop into these gas stations and fill up on the resources that they need for recovery uh, along the way. And I think this is what the, where groups like AA and other peer recovery models, which are ubiquitous, indigenous, accessible, flexible, low cost or no cost, can be very helpful when we're talking about an illness which is susceptible to recurrence, to relapse um, over the long term that they can access. Um, and this is what AA has done, what it, what it gives, what it gives uh, different societies. Yeah, and so in in terms of what it gives, um, you, you know, you have researched this extensively, but the, the the main thing is, as we've kind of touched on, that peer support network, isn't it? I mean, to me, it always intuitively makes sense that in a phase of addiction or heavy drinking or however you want to frame it, that has developed over time and with social networks who, you know, essentially social identity theory doing the things that you know our in groups reflect our own kind of values and goals so it's you know one level very intuitive that 
a part of recovery is about trying to replace your social networks with ones that are not encouraging the the, the behavior of drinking or whatever to one that is actively you know supporting people to uh, leave it behind and and kind of or kind of work on the things that might be obstacles or barriers to that um, but yeah you know as from my own personal experience having touched in AA that, that that was the thing that really struck me as valuable was to find a group of people who just were really encouraging and supportive of not drinking whereas you know most of my uh, existing group at that time either didn't get me not drinking or actively didn't like it is that reflected in the research that that's the key component that that peer support group who are kind of banding together to to, to kind of say we're going to support each other to address this this problem and albeit phrased as a, an illness or whatever um, it's the it's the social network element absolutely right yeah you know what we find when we look at the the mechanisms the so-called mechanisms of behavior change this is these this is the kind of research is done to answer the question you know why does it work or how does it work and um and that's what you're asking here in relation to social networks and absolutely right james you know when we when we look at all the different mechanisms that can change as a function of participation in aa we find that the biggest factor by far is this social network change factor and it is very likely uh, there are a number of factors that that aa mobilizes that can are therapeutic factors that are responsible for therapeutic benefit from AA. One of them is the social network, which probably creates the, the kind of the, the, the soil um, through which other um, kinds of recovery nutrients are, are absorbed um, because it's the, it's the peers with lived experience, as you said. You know, people have already trodden the path before you, so they've already got experience about how to navigate the difficult terrain ahead. So you don't have to do it alone. You can rely on guides, as it were, you know, call them sponsors or just people with lived experience um, who have already trodden that path. And so you can say, which way do I go? You know, what do I do here? Which way do I turn now? And you've got uh, not just a few, but millions of people, of course, with that experience in AA uh, who've trodden the path, who know the way. And when people see that they're attracted to and engaged by that network, uh, like you said, because of similarities in suffering from the same kind of illness, same kind of problem. They identify with, with those kinds of conditions that, from which they've suffered. Then they see, well, maybe, I can, maybe there's a way out for me here too. So there's that installation of hope. There's that universality, as Irvin Yalom would call it, um, uh, cohesion, universality, and hope, installation of hope. I can get better. I'm like these people. I can get better. Um, look what they've done. Maybe I can do the same and get better as well. And uh, this transference, this social contagion, which goes on in these groups is, is, uh, is very powerful because that's the glue. That's the social glue that helps people stick. From there, they start to boost their coping skills. They start to build their confidence. They boost their self-esteem. They build. They boost their their meaning and purpose in their life. All these things are uh, are critical to recovery. So that social network piece is is very key. Yeah, absolutely. And when and when you were talking there, I was thinking about self-efficacy as well. You know, the belief in our own or confidence in our own 
ability to make changes and that that i think comes you know i think the evidence so shows that self-efficacy or confidence in our, our capacity to recover comes mostly from doing it so you know the longer you do it uh, or the more you see around you people doing it that then that that kind of uh, transfers as well so i guess that's embedded within the social network isn't it the, the kind of building up of the belief that that you can make change or be paradoxically there's this kind of idea of powerlessness but yeah the, the actual experience of of seeing other people recover in itself is contagious. Yeah, because you know people, you know the powerlessness obviously is just it's just it's often mis misconstrued, but it's basically you know powerlessness means you know you're powerless over to change it yourself. You know the re, you're addicted to the drug and you can't change it yourself. So you need help. Um, so you're powerless by yourself to change it. So you reach out for help, and this is what um, happens. Of course, is that people do reach out for help. It can be AA and um, and uh, it's a sure-footed way to path a pathway into recovery. That is for sure. And and what about the role of spirituality? Uh, we actually did an episode with um, Wendy Dossett, who uh, gave some r- really interesting insights. And we talked to mostly about AA, but also other aspects of spirituality and recovery, like Buddhism. But but I think in your research, you know, you found that maybe for some people, spirituality is really important, but but certainly not everybody who recovers through AA or peer support. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, it, it's interesting because you know we looked at these all these different mechanisms of behavior change, and we looked at them together too to find out you know what's the relative importance of these different mechanisms through which AA can help people recover. Uh, spirituality, of course, is one major one from AA's own standpoint. It is, in fact, the one uh, as AA espouses it is that you know people recover through what it, what it calls a spiritual awakening now this can mean different things to different people and it can be very broadly defined in fact if you you could look at some definitions and not see anything you know what people would think of as spirituality in there at all so um, it, I guess it depends on what definition you use but what we found in our research uh, using very large samples, and this has been replicated by many other groups now, is that AA does increase spirituality. And you can think of spirituality as a framework for um, uh, framing stress or interpreting stress or coping with stress, as well as deriving meaning and purpose, which can be very helpful uh, in, de- in coping with life, of course. And this is why people are drawn to spiritual ideas. Um, AA has that on tap, as it were. People can tap into that. Um, but it's interesting that not everybody does. What we found is that the people who are more likely to utilize those aspects of AA on the menu of AA more heavily are people who have been more severely addicted. Um, so those people who are on the more severe end of the spectrum tend to utilize those aspects of AA, the spirituality, prayer, meditation, uh, more heavily than people on the less severe end of the spectrum. And that utilization of spiritual spirituality helps prevent relapse for those people. For the people on the lower end, less severe, still severe, but less severe comparatively, um, they tend to use utilize more of the social aspects, social and cognitive aspects of AA uh, that can help them cope. Um, the people with on the severe end of the spectrum also utilize those resources too. Don't get me wrong. They also benefit greatly from the social, cognitive, affective uh, pieces of AA, but they also utilize, tap into the spiritual aspects. 
That's really interesting. And also, you know, most of my research comes from a kind of public health perspective, or, you know, I'm particularly interested in kind of non-help seeking uh, people with alcohol use disorders. And, you know, often, you know, come up against, um, you know, ideas or beliefs that, you know, abstinence is the only way to recovery. And, you know, there's a long kind of running debate or question about whether severity of alcohol dependence or alcohol use disorder correlates with the necessity or otherwise of abstinence. But I would say, you know, just going back to what you were saying, I think that on the whole, AA participation or people who, uh, you know, find it useful are likely to be more severely alcohol dependent than at least the general population of people with alcohol use disorder or risky alcohol patterns. And, and that's intuitively makes sense again when you think about the kind of in inverted commas disease model of, of Alcoholics Anonymous and the requirement for abstinence and participation. So, so does your work kind of support that, that the AA participants will on the whole be people with more severe alcohol use disorder? Yes, yes, exactly right. Yes. Um, now, it makes sense, you know, when you think about when you're hurting, you know, when you've got a toothache, you'll, you'll get up and go to the dentist. Um, but it's usually only when the pain is great enough where you actually go and you know, make an appointment and go. It's the same with addiction, I think, and in and anything we do in life is that when you're hurting, you want to get rid of the hurt. Um, and so people with more severe problems and the people in AA tend to have more complex, more severe uh, clinical histories. Um, they need something to alleviate that suffering and become stable. Uh, and they need to continue that stability over time. So AA is kind of the grandparent of that idea, and it works very well. Now, we do have now a number of different flavors as well um, of mutual support, mutual aid, of course, uh, that have entered uh, the arena, which is good news because we need different flavors that can attract different people who, um, who have, you know, they want to access the same kinds of peer ingredients, in other words, that lived experience, uh, the same camaraderie, the fellowship, the accountability, the cheerleading, the, all those things which are operating in AA, um, they can find in other groups as well. Yeah, or horses for courses, as we'd say in the UK. Do you have that phrase? <laughs> yeah, I have, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess the takeaway is that, as you say, you know, AA or mutual aid is the closest thing, certainly in, in the recovery sense, to, to a free lunch. Um, there's unequivocal evidence that for some groups of people, it absolutely can work. And yeah, I guess... You know, I think I think the sort of practical advice for people, anyone sort of considering AA or apprehensive about it, is always that there is a huge variation in meetings. Some are structured around the twelve steps, others are are not. Some are even apparently um, agnostic meetings now. So it's it's kind of I think that that individual variability in in meetings, um, you know, one person might really fit in well with one and not another is, is the real, is a real kind of important message, I guess. Um, and that, that, you know, it really can work if, you know, the only requirement to attend is a desire to stop drinking, isn't it? So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, and I think, you know, and clinically, you know, what we do and all, all the manuals, all the, all the trials that have been done, uh, clinical trials that have been done where patients are introduced to AA and monitored, uh, generally, it's a uh, introduction and monitoring. So, uh, what we do in these studies is that uh, we encourage patients to we prescribe kind of social prescribing to participate. So, we might say, you know, try a few meetings, try three meetings this week, keep a diary of your experience, 
a log of your experience. Come back next week. Let's talk about your experiences. Try three different meetings. Find a home group. Uh, I think you were alluding to this this notion of a group where you feel comfortable, where you feel like you fit in, where there's some people there that you feel like, you know, um, you know, as they say, you know, they've got what you want. You know, you, 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 there's, there's role models there where you can you can look to and say, they seem to have their act together. I like these people. They're like me. Um, find a home group. So it's really trial and error. As you said, there's a lot of variability. I mean, in Boston here, I, I, I live in Boston, Massachusetts. There are 2,000 AA meetings a week within a 45-minute drive of my office in downtown Boston. So think about that resource. You know, so you can pick and choose, of course, you know, what kinds of meetings, where you go. Um, it's not as ubiquitous in the UK, but it's still ubiquitous. You can still find plenty of meetings. So it's a matter of try it out, see if it can work for you, give it a good try. And if not, try something else. These things can be incredibly helpful. They can make all the difference. Uh, these kinds of resources can make all the difference to sustaining these gains over time. And again, it's the over the over time piece of it. This is the issue when we're dealing with a chronic illness is that we want people to engage in something that can sustain remission over time. And this is where groups like AA can be very helpful. It's interesting that you describe, yeah, as a chronic illness, I think that makes sense in the context of sort of severe alcohol use disorder and people who benefit from AA. Um, I guess my interest is in how alcohol use disorder as a kind of broader, more heterogeneous category does or doesn't, you know, for for other people, that kind of um, chronic relapsing idea might not work or, you know, for instance, people who might find controlled drinking. And, and again, there tends to be a very different cohort. But yeah, for certainly for AA participants, that, that kind of, for some of them, that might be part of the the idea of the model that works is that this you identify it as a disease. Yeah. So, Professor John Kelly, um, you know, it's it's a fantastic, a really important and comprehensive contribution, I think, that, that you and colleagues have done over the years to really demonstrate that the value of Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, again, thank, thanks so much for your, for your time, John. Um, James, my pleasure. It's good talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alcohol Problem Podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Alcohol Podcast. So please feel free to follow us or get in touch there.